AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. The journey to a smoke-free future can be a long and winding road. But if you're ready for a change, consider taking Zinn for a spin. Zinn nicotine pouches offer a fresh way to discover your nicotine satisfaction. Anywhere, anytime. No smoke, no spit, and no lingering odor. Get in gear with the Zen 10 Challenge and enjoy 10 smoke-free, spit-free days for just $5.95. Order online and start your new journey today. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Pause for a big thank you to our partner making today's program possible. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. Amazing. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, your exercise, and medication decisions. All those decisions can lead to big results like more time in range and a lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. Thanks, Dexcom, for being our partner. Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. More bombshells in the Alex Murdoch double murder trial. Just a moment ago, the judge announced we are going on a lunch break. Now, it's timed because the jury is about to hear some sort of a recording. A recording that the judge announced would take about half an hour for the jury to hear. What is it? What will it reveal? Also today, a bombshell ruling about financial motive to commit murder. We're waiting for Ann Emerson to come straight out of the courtroom, senior investigative reporter, WCIV. But first, I want to go to Eric Bland joining us, high-profile lawyer out of Columbia and the lawyer for the Gloria Satterfield family. You all recall that Gloria Satterfield is the housekeeper and nanny that the Murdochs employed for decades. And I will never forget on that 911 call after she had fallen to her death there at the Murdoch home, how uh, the caller referred to her as the woman that worked for us. Really? The woman raises you? Helps raise you? And now she's the woman that worked for us? Okay. Eric Bland uh, joining us. Eric, what do you make of what's going on in the courtroom right now? Well, I think we had an explosive day, Nancy. First, thanks for having me on. I think Mark Tinsley shows the type of lawyering that we have here in South Carolina. 
um, he just tore the lid off of the myth of Alex Murdoch and what the pressures that he was under on the day of uh, the murders and in the month of June. I think we also saw a little bit of Brooklyn, New York, like we were in a mafia trial because Mark mentioned about Alex tampering with the jury. And then with Miss uh, Shelley, we just heard about witness intimidation. This is the power, Nancy, that the Murdoch's had as a grip on these counties for a hundred years. But I think what we've seen is this judge is now seeing who Alex Murdoch really is. Um, a true dastardly sociopath, a man that will steal from clients, steal from his law firm, steal from his family, um, intimidate people. It, uh, it was a big ruling. Now, you got to be real careful as a prosecutor because now you got something. And does this create an appellate issue when all the 404B stuff comes in? But I think hey, the, hey, uh, hey, 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 I've hey. called it the emperor hey, without Eric. any clothes. We're not we're Eric. seeing who he is. Eric. Don't throw around yes. any legalese. When you say, what did you say, 404B, explain that in regular people talk. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's the bad character evidence. Admitting all of these potential financial crimes that he's charged with and other financial pressures. And what we don't want in our courts, Nancy, is the reason for this rule is we don't want somebody to be convicted of murder just because they're you know, a serial penciling or thief like he is. Um, but the judge showed that they are temporal in time to the murders and that this influenced his actions. It became the motive. So we'll see if these dots can be connected, but it was explosive testimony today to the court by Mark Tinsley. And then Miss Shelley, really, you could see uh, labored hard about what she had to say, but he was clearly crafting an alibi of saying that he was there at the house for 30 to 40 minutes. Guys, when you hear Eric Bland, who is a high-profile lawyer, joining us from Columbia, South Carolina, describe the financial, I'm just calling it misdeeds, but what it is is outright embezzlement, siphoning, stealing from clients and the law firm he said they were temporal in time. In other words, it was happening at the time of the murders. Okay, It was um, very important to him to cover that up. It was contemporaneous with the time of the murders. It's not like the state is reaching back for the last 20 years to show a pattern of theft. This was happening right up to the time that Maggie and Paul were gunned down dead. Now, Eric Bland, how do you believe that the state is going to tie millions and millions of dollars that Murdoch stole, including from your clients? How, is, how are they going to connect that to the murders as being the motive? You know, sometimes motive isn't clean, Nancy. Sometimes People kill for reasons that would make us scratch our head like you really did it for that. But what this was is nothing more than problem solving. As my co-host on our podcast, Cup of Justice, Liz uh, Farrell says, he had a problem. And that is when the law firm is breathing down his neck on misappropriated fees of $792,000. And in his head, he knows that the Satterfield matter is now being publicly talked about him stealing $4.3 million dollars. He knows that his entire life is dependent on his law firm revenue, both legitimate and then, this, then what he steals. And it would be taken away. The Satterfield case is so important because 
He can't control that. If that gets to our state bar, he gets disbarred. Exactly what happened when I got the $4.3 million judgment. So in your mind or in other people's minds, they'll say, well, this really isn't a reason why you would kill your wife and kid. But remember, this guy is a sociopath. Money to him is his God. It's his status in life. And he saw that money train drying up quickly. And that's why he did what he did. Now, whether the jury is going to believe that's proper motive, that's that's for another day. But I think what you heard today is the courage of Mark Tinsley, who I've described as nothing but a positive terrorist. You put that person in your house, he will blow it up. He's that dogged for his clients. And Miss Smith is credible. I mean, she didn't want to testify. You saw the fear, the palpable fear that that woman was showing in court because Alex tried to put the grips to her and said, I was there 30 to 40 minutes, right? And she's saying, no, you were only, you were only there to 10 minutes. However, we took a break. There is a rough draft that was just given to the prosecution of her uh, statement that she gave. And we'll see if she supports that in her statement that she gave in June of 2021. But Alex Murdoch really is somebody that the world is seeing right now without his clothes on. Harputlin and Griffin are doing what they can, but his family's got to ask some hard questions. We know where this judge stands on this, uh, this man, Nancy. We know where he stands. You know, you were talking about the allegation that Alex Murdoch would intimidate witnesses. I want to tell you a true story. I had a, this was my first mass murder case that I ever handled. And I had a photo array, a photo lineup to show a witness, what I thought was going to be a witness. It was late one Sunday night when three murders went down. And only after we had done the photo array and I was back at the courthouse and I was getting everything together to present to the jury, <laughs> Eric, I looked down at my photo array and one photo was about a half an inch bigger than the other photos. Can I tell you, I remember the moment I realized it's about that much bigger than the other photos. Because they were, uh, what would that be, Jack? A three by five type photo. They weren't, you know, uh, passport size photos. And when I put them all together, I saw one was a little bit bigger. And I'm like, oh, my stars. And clearly you see the constitutional problem with that. The witness would look at that photo because it's bigger than the others. Well, luckily... The witness did not identify that photo, and that photo was not the perp anyway. But still, in my mind, I'm like, oh, my stars, I've done something wrong. This is unconstitutional. That photo is about a half an inch bigger. <laughs> so, Eric Bland, I was a nervous wreck until the photo array was admitted. I mean, something that small. I thought that that's wrongdoing. What, what's going to happen? Is the, the ID going to get thrown out? It meant nothing. It meant nothing at all. And now we've got claims that Alex Murdoch actually intimidated witnesses. Um, also, a lot in today about the Mallory Beach 
death. We all know that Mallory Beach was a young teen girl that was on a boat with Paul Murdoch. When Murdoch, high as a kite and drunk as a skunk, insisted on speeding in the dark hours of the night through a tiny channel. I've been there, Eric Bland, and we were going easy, really easy, because there were twists and turns. He was flooring it. He slammed into the cement pilings, and Mallory Beach flew off the boat to her death. I mean, Dr. Michelle Dupree, you were there. We saw it virtually at the same time. That little channel where Mallory Beach lost her life. Do you, do you remember seeing those cement pilings? No one could have survived that, Dr. Michelle Dupree. I do remember that, Nancy, and that was so reckless. When you look at that channel in broad daylight, as we did, it doesn't seem as treacherous, but it's still very narrow, and the pilings are, as you said, concrete. And to, to be speeding at night like that is simply horrific. And Eric Bland, I'm building up. I'm laying a foundation right now to my question. Uh, for my question to you, you mentioned that Maggie and Paul's murders were, your words, not mine, problem-solving. And that's exactly what I've been thinking because Maggie was filing for a divorce. It hasn't come out in court yet, I don't think. But she was filing for a divorce. The moment I put my foot in South Carolina, I had people come up and say, Maggie saw a divorce lawyer. He's a piece of crap. She wants a divorce. And so he killed her. It seemed like everybody knew. Yeah, okay, fine. You, you Say whatever you want to, Eric Bland. And Paul... And Paul was the reason. So in, anyway, regarding her divorce, she would be filing for a forensic accounting to try to find the money for her to get half of. All right. And Paul, he was the fly in the ointment because Paul is the reason Mallory Beach's family was going after the Murdoch Empire. So when you say problem solving, is it really just that cut and dried? Get rid of Maggie, no forensic accountant. Get rid of Paul, the Mallory Beach case, we'll settle. Is that what you meant by problem solving? Yes. I mean, look, it's not a rational reason and when we look at it now, but in the height of his frenzy at that time, that's what he could come up with. Remember, there was one other um, investigation that hasn't been talked about yet. We had an impaneled grand jury for nine months and Alex was being looked at for obstruction of justice for what he did inside the emergency hospital room after the Mallory Beach case because he was going from room, room to room and trying to influence what the boys would say that Paul was not driving the boat. So in addition to Maggie not signing over the beach house in connection with the Palmetto State Bank loan, in addition to being confronted by Jeannie of the $792,000 fee with Chris Wilson, in addition to Mark Tinsley, who's just a hurricane force attorney breathing down his neck, now you have him being investigated on a grand jury scale. You have the Satterfield matter that he knows is now publicly written about. And you also have the fact that he's being sued, Buster's being sued in the Mallory Beach case, plus Paul is being criminally charged with DUI homicide, which he knows he's going to get at least 20 to 30 years if he lives. That kind of pressure breaks pipes, Nancy. Guys, speaking of Alex Murdoch trying to bully the Mallory Beach lawyer 
Take a listen to our cut one. Did you see the defendant there? I did. And did you have a conversation with him about the boat case? I did. All right. Can you relate that conversation to the court, please? Yeah. Um, I think, I'm not 100% certain that it was a fundraiser, either for Mr. Harpootlian or it was a fundraiser for Lindsey Graham. Alex sees me and he comes across and he gets up close in my face and says, hey, Bo, what's this I'm hearing about what you're saying? I thought we were friends. And I replied, Alex, we are friends. Uh, if you don't think I can burn your house down and that I'm, that, that I'm not doing everything, and I'm not going to do everything you're wrong, you need to settle this case. The point of it was we're friends. I took it as he tried to intimidate me. He didn't intimidate me uh, and, and sort of bully me into backing off. So, Eric Bland, I was worried about a half an inch photo that was too, too large. OK, that somehow I had done something wrong. And here's this guy trying to intimidate lawyers into backing off of a very serious case regarding Mallory Beach. Yeah, it's it's um, it's indicative of how Alex comports himself. He he has his entire life. He's gone to other lawyers and said, look, Bo, let's work this out together. You know, let don't worry about the clients. Well, I'll scratch your back. You're scratch my back. Mark Tinsley wasn't playing that game that day. And Mark Tinsley told him, I will burn your house down to watch mine smoke. And Alex really learned at that point in time, man, Tinsley is going to come at me and he's going to want to know my finances. And if I have to put my finances together, and if you're correct, Nancy, that uh, Maggie was seeing a divorce lawyer, then Maggie's going to get a full picture of his finances. So he was under inordinate amount of pressure in June of 2021. Uh, Jim, and, Jim and Dick are just watching a different script, a different play than we are. But that's pressure that that man was under. And he tried to problem solve the best way he can. I know Dick and Jim say, well, wait a minute. He's a thief and he's going to try to cover up his financial crimes and now implicate himself in a murder. But a sociopath and a narcissist think they can control the situation. They think they can talk their way out of it. Nancy, how many narcissists have you prosecuted? Many, many. That you, you scratched your head and said, you really thought you could control the situation? But they do because they're arrogant. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Pause for a big thank you to our partner making today's crime stories possible. It's Lisa Mattress. Don't let a bad mattress stand between you and a good night's sleep. Lisa Mattress can help. From memory foam mattresses that hug in all the right places to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer incredible comfort and support at every price point. Collectively, their mattresses have over 20,000 five-star reviews. 
Delivery is free, returns are easy, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your own home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash nancy for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com forward slash nancy. Thanks, Lisa Mattress for being our partner. Pause for a big thank you to our partner making today's program possible, Easy Breathe. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe ventilation system exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe ventilation system. You can get it installed or do-it-yourself kits available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com. Get 20% off today. Thank you, Easy Breathe, for being our partner. Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. You know, to Chris McDonough joining me, um, he is the director at the Cold Case Foundation, a former homicide detective many, many years, host of a YouTube channel, The Interview Room. You can find him at coldcasefoundation.org, and you can find Bland, Eric Bland, at blandrichter.com. Chris, nothing would make me, well, I take that back, a lot of things would make me matter, but one thing that would make me mad is a wet hen is for someone to come up and try to trade on our familiarity. You know, like, hey, Nancy, you know, we're old friends. There are very few, quote, old friends that are defense lawyers. In fact, very few at all. I could count all defense lawyers that are my friends on one hand. Because as a prosecutor, I could not blur that line. That would be unethical to me. And for someone to come up and go, hey, you know my family, you know me, we're friends, we go back, we went to law school together. B.S. Don't care. So Chris McDonough, has anyone, after all those years of you being a homicide detective, come up and try to parlay their way into some kind of an advantage or a sweet deal? Because that's no friend at all. To expect you to do the wrong thing? Oh, no. Yeah, Nancy, three words. Uh, Greed addiction, and desperation. Um, you know, I we heard testimony where Sled uh, was going to go do an interview, and guess what? He filled the room with a room full of lawyers. Uh, I, I've never had a case where I've walked into a room as the door opens, and I scan the room, And I see that everybody in that room, except potentially two people, uh, are practicing law. And why are they practicing that day uh, in that room to talk about the timeline and all the minutia events that are going on in Alex Murdoch's life? Um, So, no, I've never had somebody come up, you know, play a friend to me and then you know, later on, try to, you know, play it off. No way. Ann Emerson is joining us, senior investigative reporter, WCIV ABC News. 
and she is the host of an award-winning daily podcast, Unsolved South Carolina, The Murdoch Murders, Money and Mystery. Ann Emerson, great to have you with us. Tell me everything. Don't leave anything out. Go. Oh, my gosh. I mean, once again, we have this trial within a trial going. Now, we've had some resolution earlier today. Of course, the financial crimes are coming in, which it could be a devastating blow to to the defense right now. It certainly feels like a huge deal. But the judge said, you know, when he came across his ruling, he said, yes, I'm allowing all of these financial charges, all of these crimes that Alec Murdoch is alleged to commit, um, it's coming in as evidence. And and this is, the judge said he found it so intimately connected um, and explanatory. I think it's essential to allow the state to use this in their uh, motivation uh, uh, for for committing what they say um, Alec Murdoch did, which was kill his wife and son. So that happened this morning, Nancy. And then hey, um, once we kind of got through that and the jury came back in. Hey, Ann. Yes. I want to play that for our listeners and viewers right now. It's in our cut eight, but this is a, a, a turning point in my mind. A lot's been happening in the courtroom, but when the judge decided to allow this motive evidence in, it's a real game changer as far as I'm concerned because we all know that Alex Murdoch is a POC. That's a technical legal term, but the jury doesn't know it. The jury doesn't know it because as Eric Bland pointed out, in our country, and our jurisprudence system, a defendant is judged and evaluated on the crime at hand, not based on bad reputation or past bad acts. I want you to hear how the judge reached his decision in our cut eight. Listen. While motive is not a necessary element, the state must prove malice and evidence of motive may be used to prove it. And in this case, since the identity of the perpetrator is a critical element that must be proven beyond a reasonable doubt, evidence of motive may be used in an attempt to meet that burden. I find that it is so intimately connected with and explanatory of the crime charged under the theory that the state um, is seeking to prove that proof of it is essential to complete the story. In conclusion, the state's motion to admit the other evidence or evidence of other crimes is admitted. Wow. You know, earlier you were hearing Eric Bland describing Alex Murdoch bullying people, intimidating witnesses. Before I go back to Ann Emerson joining us from WCIV, I want you to hear it the way we all heard it straight out of the courtroom in our cut nine. And you'll recognize this is Alex Murdoch. I was talking about Alex Murdoch telling uh, someone he was at the house with her It's his mother's caretaker. That's who it is for 30 or 40 minutes. And the woman is trying to stick to her guns and say, that's not true. Take a listen to our cut nine. And what did he tell you? He was at the house. And I'm not 100% following you. He was telling you or saying to you that he was at the house? Mm -hmm. When? 
Um, the night of the murders. The, the night, night of the murders. Yes. What was he telling you about that he was at the house the night of the murders? That he'd been there 30 to 40 minutes. Did he indicate to you what he wanted you to do with that information? No. Mm -hmm. No. What no, did he say? He just said that he was at the house the 30 to 40 minutes. I said. He said what? Was he there 30 or 40 minutes that night? Not to my recall. Why are you crying, Miss Because it's a good, fam a good family, and I love working here. And I'm sorry all this happened. You know what I don't like, Ann Emerson? Nancy. I don't like that it. That was crushing I don't testimony. Like it when someone who is rich and educated and well positioned trying to intimidate or bully someone who is not as powerful or as cunning as they are. I don't like that this lady is reduced to tears on the stand. Did you hear what she says? I've been with this family a long time. I like working with them. I mean, I wonder well, they if she were family too. If she I mean, didn't she... go along with him that she would lose her job. It was absolutely a moment in that courtroom when she started to break down and you knew that she had already said that she was only there, that he had only been there for about 15 to 20 minutes and had made that very clear in her testimony. And when this came up, and this was at the at the funeral, uh, after the funeral of, of Mr. Randolph, uh, Alec's father, that Alec would come up and say, I was there. I was there for 30 or 40 minutes. And that's what he told her. This was, this is a very, obviously was a very hard thing for her to deal with. Do you know what the first thing was that she said she did when, when he said that though? She called her brother. Mm. You know who her brother is? Chief of police over at another small town. That was the first reaction she had. And he said, why did you call your brother who is a chief of police? And she said, because there was not something right about this. So. You know, she knew that she had to deal with that information right off the bat because it was it was strange. Other things that were strange that she talks about that I'm sure defense is going to be talking about as well. Um, but the prosecution asked her when he came over that night, what did he have on? He had on a T-shirt. He had on his shorts. He had on some Sperry uh, shoes. Uh, what did he do? He came and he laid down on or was lying sort of on the bed with his mom for 15 or 20 minutes. Unusual time? Yes. Uh, she said it was an unusual time for him to come, that she doesn't remember him coming that time of night. And something we've heard before about Alzheimer's patients is that, uh, which Miss Libby, uh, from what we understand, was suffering from, um, that's not a great time of night for Alzheimer's patients. So once again, just another another layer in this or a thread in the rope of the circumstantial evidence of what's going on but there's more nancy but you tell me uh if you have a cut on what happened with um with the blue tarp uh that was sort of the next yeah, sort hold of on, hold on. devastating I do. I blow do. i want to go through what you've already said and if i could get christine could you put up the lady witness the caretaker again because I guarantee you, making a lady like this, a fine lady, break down in tears on the stand, what you don't want to do 
is make a witness cry unless they're a flat-out liar or their defendant the defendant I have no problem making the defendant cry on the stand I love that but this lady's just trying to do her job and mind her own business and it's never a good thing when for the defendant if the jury perceives he has put her in a bad position and is making this lady cry on the stand and call her brother out of fear. Now, Ann Emerson, I played the sound for our listeners, but I want you to tell us in detail what she said, how the how everyone was reacting. I want to hear the whole thing in Technicolor. Tell me everything. I think it's so important to understand like exactly what was happening in there. It was kind of one of those moments where time sl slowed down a little bit for all of us because we're hearing that she had just said that that she knew that he had been there for 15 <clears throat> or 20 minutes. And for him to just sort of walk up at that point at a very emotional time when they've just lost, uh, you know, the patriarch, Randolph Murdoch. Uh, and she, he, from what she said, he came up to her and said I was there for 30 or 40 minutes and she didn't say anything when that happened but it was enough to kind of take her take her a minute but when the when the when the crowds cleared from that from that gathering with all the family there she went and called her brother now what was going on in the courtroom when she told this it took her a couple of times to get it out as you heard it took her a minute to get it out you've got Alec uh, the defendant you know sitting at the at the defense table and he is <coughs> staring hard at this witness Miss mm. um, Shelley he was staring very hard at what she was saying. The family is literally leaning in because you know, you've got Buster Murdoch and you've got John Marvin who've been at, you know, everything. Lynn Murdoch, I was watching very closely, his sister, and they were really listening to this. And and you, you knew that this felt like new information the way she was sharing it. It may be information that they had heard, but they had not heard a woman who was so close to that family say it like that and you know that jury that jury was paying literally hanging on her every word of what she was going to say next it was a it was an incredibly powerful moment is this eric Nancy, go ahead jump in eric bland you're going to hear after lunch the uh statement that she made um to the investigators and i'm sure she may not have mentioned in such uh, clear terms, the 30 to 40 minute um, suggestion that Alex said, and understand why. She's got a job. She's taking care of Miss Libby. Alex is not charged at that time. Alex is still a powerful lawyer at that time. Alex and his family run the county at that time. So it's not beyond um, seeing why maybe she didn't give such a detailed statement to either the police or to the defense at that time because Alex wasn't charged. Now that he's charged, maybe she has a little bit more personal protection that she feels. But I'm not moved if I didn't hear her say the 30 to 40 minute mm. suggestion in her first interview because Alex is still full of power. Today he's neutered. So that's going to be interesting to see what we hear after lunch.
Absolutely, yeah, Eric. And, about and, you know, really... the, that is a defense statement. That's a statement that the prosecution says that they didn't get. So this is the defense, um, sta- like, handing over 30 minutes or so of a statement that they got from this witness. And the way I understood it, and tell me if I'm wrong, but the way I understood it was that the prosecution didn't have this in their discovery, which I think is going to be a bone of contention for sure. They did not. They did not. It would be like John Gotti's lawyer, Bruce Cutler, coming up to the witness and and trying to get a statement. And John Gotti hasn't been uh, accused yet. I mean, you're going to be a little bit circumspect of what you're going to say. And she viewed viewed Alex Murdoch the same way that somebody in New York City would view John Gotti. He's that big. And Emerson, are you saying that the defense attorney approached Miss Shelley Smith, Michelle Shelley Smith, before Alex Murdoch was charged? to get a statement from her? Is that what you're saying? I don't know when this statement was taken. I don't know if Eric caught that, but I haven't heard exactly when the statement was given right. uh, to the defense, but but we know that it was given and this is new information. At least that's the way they reacted. The prosecution and the state certainly reacted as if they didn't hear I can't understand that. you. Just, let me just make it really simple. Do we know who took the statement from Michelle Shelley Smith? Who took the statement? defense. Okay. Did the defense hand the statement over to the government? No. No. Just now, from what we understand. I want you to hear what we're talking about. It's our cut nine. Christine, if you could play that one more time. And what this is about is Alex Murdoch telling Miss Michelle Shelley Smith, oh, yes, I was there 40 minutes the night of the murders. And she's like, no, you weren't. Listen. And what did he tell you? He was at the house. And I'm not 100% following you. He was telling you or saying to you that he was at the house? Mm-hmm. When? Um, the night of the murders. The, the night, night of the murders? Yes. What was he telling you about that he was at the house the night of the murders? That he'd been there 30 to 40 minutes. Did he indicate to you what he wanted you to do with that information? No. No. no what sir. did he say? He just said that he was at the house the 30 to 40 minutes. I said. He said what? Was he there 30 to 40 minutes that night? Not to my recall. Why are you crying, Because it's a good family, a good family, and I love working there. And I'm sorry all this happened. And there you see this lady witness on the stand saying, "Quote: I'm sorry all this happened." She is apologizing. He's the one that's accused of double murder. She's not accused of anything. But this lady is crying and she's up on the stand apologizing. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
Pause for a big thank you to our partner making today's crime stories possible. It's Lisa Mattress. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new natural hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design icon West Elm, the natural hybrid is the culmination of the two companies' shared values of premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the natural hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. I want to do that. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Go to lisa.com forward slash Nancy to learn more. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com forward slash Nancy. Pause for a big thank you to our partner making today's program possible, Easy Breathe. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe Ventilation System exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe Ventilation System. You can get it installed or do-it-yourself kits available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com. Get 20% off today. Thank you, Easy Breathe, for being our partner. Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. Guys, you heard Ann Emerson uh, joining us from WCIV ABC talking about a blue tarp. I want you to hear it just the way we heard it in the courtroom. It is our cut Ten, and then we'll go to Ann and let her explain and get Dr. Michelle Dupree to follow up. Guys, take a listen to our cut ten about the blue tarp. He had to blue something in his hand. It's like a tarp that you put on the car, you keep your car covered up. Big thing. Yeah, blue. Yeah. And was he holding it like this? He was holding it like this. He testified Mr. Murdoch came into uh, Almeda residence that morning. This is States 223. Do you recognize that? Yes. What is that? Upstairs, going upstairs. And is that where he went, Alex Murdoch, all that morning? Yes. Carrying some blue thing. Mm-hmm. Did you ever see that blue thing unfolded when you were that morning, or you saw him carrying it? It was unfolded. Okay. Where did you see it? In the bedroom. When you came back the next day, was that there? No, it wasn't. It was gone? Yes, it was gone. And did you see Alex Murdoch leave? After he went upstairs. Do you know what he did upstairs? No, I no. That morning, this morning when you first saw him at 6.30, did you observe anything about his face? Any on his face? They had like a little color, a little blue cut or something. And, it, it, man, I apologize. A little what cut? Like a, like a little bruise or something. Where was it? It's like above his forehead. Out to Ann Emerson joining us, WCIV. Ann, what happened? Well, you know, she talks about what happened about three days after... Uh 
Randolph Murdoch's funeral, they, she described it like the tents were still up in the yard. It's early morning. It was like 6.30 in the morning when she hears a knock at the bedroom window. He doesn't do what he did the last time when he came on June 7th when he came and, um, and, and actually kind of came to the door and said, let me in. Uh, he went to a, a bedroom door, knocks on the window. She comes around, lets him in, and he says he's carrying it. And the way they sort of described it is this blue tarp vinyl material kind of bundled up. And, and he's holding it like this, like a baby. I don't know if you can see it, but like holding it like this is the way they talked about it. To the point where, you know, she was getting down from the stand, holding like where, where it was, looking at the blue tarp. There was a lot of action going on in the courtroom. And I've seen it from both sides, honestly, where they, where they bring the witnesses down to really kind of show what they're talking about. But they do that. But there was also with this blue tarp that he goes up to a bedroom. Now, defense gets... Um, a little bit uh, digs a little deeper with Miss Shelley and asks her, you know, how much have you been upstairs and trying to, I think, poke holes in, in exactly where she saw this. But but what we understand is this blue tarp had gone into a bedroom that she doesn't really go up to very often because she's always with Miss Libby downstairs. But he goes, he puts this blue tarp over uh, Miss Libby's retirement rocker, like an old rocker. And then the next day it's gone. So there's this mystery around that. There's also a mystery around what car he was driving when he came in and left and then came back. It seems like, and we're, and I've asked the other reporters that we were sitting around, I was like, did we get a clear idea of like these trucks and, and the vehicles that they're talking about that were moving in and out? Because we heard there was a white truck that day and then there was a black truck that day. We also heard that an ATV, like an all-terrain vehicle they use on these farms and out in the country had also had been moved um, on um, on this property at Almeida. This is where uh, Alex's parents, Libby and Randolph Murdoch lived. So we need to find out a little bit more after lunch about what's going on with this truck and the vehicles and how it ties into what they think happened with this blue tarp. Joining me is Dr. Michelle Dupree, a forensic scientist, a medical examiner, former detective and author of Homicide Investigation Field Guide. Dr. Dupree explained the significance of the blue tarp that according to Miss Michelle on the stand, Alex Murdoch brought over to his mother's home the night of the murders. Well, Nancy, there's a couple things interesting about this. First of all, she said that this was very early for him, that he's never in her three years tenure working there come to visit this early. And he's carrying this blue tarp or whatever it may be. There is some significance because during the investigation, a blue item was found with significant gunshot residue on it. Now, is that the same item or not? I'm not sure that we really know. But what other blue item could there be? Ann Emerson, I thought she said he never came over that late at night. Well, that's true. That true. That's, what, that's what they talked about was she said she hadn't seen him come that late when he came on June 7th. Um, that he normally did not come that late. So these were unusual times. And she also said that early. Visiting his mom. You know, another thing about the blue tarp, isn't it true, Ann Emerson, that gunshot residue was allegedly found on the blue, she thought a blue tarp? T tell me tell me about the blue tarp. Well, that's what the prosecution has been talking about, and there's been a lot of like 
talking amongst them, you know, about this tarp versus a raincoat. Was it a raincoat? Because, of course, we know the weather was really bad uh, the night of the murders. Uh, but the blue tarp is what they seem to be kind of sticking with right now. And that, yes, that's what we've been told early on um, in this trial as they as they were going through what kind of evidence that they were going to present. They certainly spoke about this blue tarp with with gunshot residue that they found on the inside. And now we need to find out where they actually got that blue tarp. We've heard that it was in a closet, but we've got uh, we've got to hear more from the prosecution about um, how they're going to to use this. Now, when she describes it, obviously there was a lot of intimating going on in that courtroom that there was something wrapped up. That's where the prosecution was going with was that he was something was wrapped up like a rifle. They even said it once. They said, was it like a rifle? And I think they objected to that. But the defense was like, you know, they're going to argue. They're arguing the semantics of what it looks like to see a blue tarp in somebody's arms wrapped up. So I think that's what they're working with right now. To Eric Bland, high-profile lawyer joining us out of South Carolina. Eric, it in my mind, in every case I've ever tried, there's always that one moment when everything changes. And I truly believe that Michelle Shelley Smith was that moment because I, I believe that this one witness is so credible and so believable that it changes everything to the state's benefit. Yeah, she covered a lot of bases uh, for the state. Um, she's covering possible gunshot residue. She's covering the power of the Murdoch. She's covering the alibi creation by Alex. Um, but what she really conveys is the intimidation factor, the wit a, a witness that you saw the palpable fear and anxiety that she was under just talking about them, even at a time where Alex is behind bars and has been behind bars for 14 months. So this this is how this happens. You know, it's going to be interesting, Nancy, on the drug issue, because I heard one of the experts said addiction. The state can either use the drugs to their advantage by saying Alex was under opioids, which created a heightened sense of anxiety and uh, lack of rational thought. I, for one, don't believe it because I don't think he would be able to have uh, appeared in court, gone to Thanksgiving dinners with his family, you know, be in partners meetings and client meetings. He would have fallen asleep or would have exhibited some kind of uh, behavior that would have clued people in that he was on drugs. So I think the drugs a red herring issue, but it can be used by the state to say that he wasn't rational when he did it. But this witness, I think Tony Satterfield, when he comes on uh, now and testifies in court, uh, and Mark Tinsley, mm -hmm. um, I may come on to just talk about the confession of judgment that we got. Th this is looking at Alex in a whole new light. He's no longer, you know, the, the, the shine on the venerable dome is starting to dull a little bit. That's what we're seeing. I think um, it's true, you know, too. Another I think thing that came out in court with this witness on the stand, Ann Emerson, is that this witness, didn't she call... Alex Murdoch, didn't she say he was acting very fidgety? He Yes, I was going to say, yes, absolutely. She talked about how he was fidgety. The defense immediately, you know, as soon as they got into cross with that, they tried to like talk about how that's just his personality, how he's always kind of on the go and moving. 
but yes, she absolutely talked about how he looked fidgety mm -mm. that night. Mm -mm. That can't that can't be good. Yeah. But you know, I want to tell you one other thing about intimidation um, that the prosecution tried to play up as well when they were when they were in, when they were uh, when she was testifying. She talked about how she was getting married, and this happened at the same time he said about the I was there thirty or forty minutes. You know, talking to Shelley at the after that funeral. And um, she, he said, so you're getting married soon? And she said, yeah. And he goes, you know, weddings are expensive. And she goes, I know. And um, he was, he said, she testified that he was like, well, you know, he's, I'll be helping out with that. You know, basically, I'm going to help, I'm going to help with that, with that wedding. I know how expensive this wedding is. And she took it for the goodness. And she even said at one point, she thought Alec Murdoch was a good person. Um, it was their relationship. But the fact that she brought it up in this testimony, I think it is important to bring up another layer of control and power and intimidation is what the state And then he knew somebody at her school. Bribe. Go to you. You've, tried, you've handled so many homicide investigations. I know the defense is going to try to swing this fidgety uh, description to their benefit by possibly saying, yeah, he had an addiction. I don't think it's ever good for a jury to find out you're high. You're high as a kite all the time. I don't think that ever helps. Do you? Not at all. And in fact, uh, what the jury's also going to hear the type of addiction, if it's uh, an opioid, uh, that's actually going to slow down his, uh, you know, his internal symptomology, so, which is going to lead us back to that uh, interview in the car the night of that incident. Um, you know, I look at Alex Murdoch as a very good, um, I would describe a three-card Monty uh, player, right? Remember that old game where you, you know, find, find the right card? Uh, he is a master manipulator, and he's put so much emotional stress upon that witness that we just saw. However, his undoing is going to be uh, a couple of things that he brought out uh, out of his own mouth the night in that car. Uh, a couple of them, one, is the fact that he rolls his son over after witnessing, uh, you know, allegedly body parts next to the body. And what does he introduce into the conversation? A cell phone. Okay. Why is that relevant? I think we all can understand uh, that he picked it up and he was going to do something with it and then change his mind and put it down. Well, that just kind of ties into the investigative uh, you know, uh, evidence that we heard uh, about that cell phone you know, screen changing uh, distance. And it also brings relevance to the fact that Maggie's phone is different. But the gun aspect of this is the shotgun that he was holding when law enforcement came onto the scene that night. There he now puts his fingerprints on it. He gives a reason for it. But that also is another three-card Monty play, in my opinion, because now the defense can argue, look, this guy, you know, he told you he had a shotgun. Uh, he told you he picked up the cell phone. Well, isn't it interesting that now we have this blue tarp with uh, gunshot mm -hmm. residue on it, and there is one gun mm -hmm. missing. Um, so I think he's, he, the minutiae details here again, Nancy, are going to be crucial 
uh, for the witnesses to continue uh, to testify to and uh, the jury to hear. Dr. Michelle Dupree joining me out of that jurisdiction. She's joining us from South Carolina, forensic pathologist, medical examiner, former detective and author. All this evidence we're amassing regarding Alex Murdoch's opioid addiction. Explain what type of medications that would be in street talk and also how an opioid addiction would affect you. Would you be fidgety or would you be lethargic? Well, Nancy, that's a very good question. It's a very good observation because an opioid is a central nervous system depressant, which means that it slows things down. So we're going to see him, instead of be fidgety, we're going to see him be much more like he was the night of the interview, um, taking things more slowly, and he's going to be... Um, thinking a lot probably and again not not in a fidgety sense if that was his normal um, behavior fidgeting then we're going to see him not do that so much if he's on opioids the other thing is if he has had an opioid addiction for such a long time he is not going to look as healthy as he does you would never look at him and suspect that he had an opioid a long-term chronic opioid addiction why, why do you say that because you're going to have um, a, a thinner appearance you're not going to appear as healthy um, it is an addiction and it causes physical changes to your body my concern is why haven't they mentioned his gambling issues? We know that judges, attorneys, people in the low country, ever since I can remember, when court is in session, they all go over to Ladies Island and have big time Las Vegas style gambling games. Okay, I, I hope you're not speaking of that from firsthand witness account, but common names of opioids are oxy, which can be oxycodone, Vicodin, Norco, Lortab, Percocet, Tramadol, those are types of pills that have a high opioid content. And if you want to wonder, what would opioids do to you? Has everybody in this room seen The Wizard of Oz? Yes, no. Yes, okay. Remember when Dorothy was trying to get to the Emerald City and she came across a poppy field and she became sleepy? And the dog got sleepy, and the tin man got... Everybody fell asleep. I think but the dog. Anyway, long story short, opioids slow you down. So why was Alex Murdoch so fidgety, according to, in, in my opinion, the best witness that's been put on the stand, bar none, the housekeeper of the mom, Michelle Shelley Smith, I think has been the best witness that the state has put up so far. Why, according to her, was he fidgety if he's on opioids? Because he just committed a double murder. And that leads me to the next thing. Ann Emerson, <clears throat> she described what he was wearing when he got there. It was a white t-shirt and the shorts. So what happened to his clothes, Ann Emerson? Well, exactly. I mean, what the what the prosecution is teeing up for us is that they, that he changed his clothes because we see in the Snapchat video from earlier in that day that's already been admitted into evidence. We've already looked at it. It's he's got on a totally different outfit, and this is a couple of hours beforehand, an hour beforehand. 
Um, so this is to, to completely change his clothes. They asked him when he got, you know, they, they both use it for their benefit. One is saying his clothes are, are clean as a whistle is what the defense is saying. And the prosecution saying that's because he changed his clothes. So you've got these two storylines. It's going to be very interesting to see how the jury uh, reads it. But right now, that's why he's, you know, every time we see him at any point Got during it. that day, someone's asking, what did he have on? What did the clothes look like? And was there blood on it? Um, from what we understand, Shelley did not see any blood on his clothes. So, Eric Bland, what did he do with his clothes? Well, that's the question. You know, are they still um, at Mazelle? I've been there. Um, there's <coughs> half the acreage is swamp. I know that they have uh, had divers in there and they had divers at Almeida. You know, he knows that country better than anybody else, that country area. So it could be somewhere um, we just don't know. Or somebody could have helped them get rid of them. Okay, now, Eric Bland, you're the renowned attorney out of South Carolina, not me. Now, when I say Eric Bland, where do you think the clothes are? I'm expecting a little bit more than, I don't know. I mean, based on the terrain, based on Moselle, yeah, I know he got rid of them, but is there a body of water? Is there a ravine? Do you, I, I don't see him taking the time to bury them somewhere because he was trying to establish that alibi at his mother's house. So thinking through it. I've been on the property. And? There, there is tremendous areas of swamp where, that, where the guns and those clothes can be buried and they'll never be found. Um, I've been in that country area there. There are a lot of nooks and crannies where he could have been on his way to Almeida after showering and cleaning himself off that he temporarily hid this stuff. Look, Yellowstone has the train station. There's somewhere in, um, in Mazelle area there where there's some, something similar. Oh, yeah. He got rid of it, but where? And would he have risked going back to the hiding location to secure the clothes, get the clothes, and then destroy them, such as burn them. We also don't have a murder weapon. That's not the end of the world for the prosecution. To Ann Emerson joining us, senior investigative reporter, WCIV ABC. Ann, I heard the judge, wow, I'm seeing an overhead earlier of Moselle. It's huge. Those clothes could be anywhere. Um, I understood that there is... There's going to be half an hour for the jury to listen to something. What is it they're going to hear? Well, the jury needs to hear what Miss Shelley, this witness that was on the stand, they are going to listen to what the defense when they interviewed her and this is going to be part of um this is going to be going into evidence and but the but the jury needs to hear this conversation that the defense had with shelly smith and this is what the prosecution was talking about just before break they were like we don't know about this we don't have this it's not discovery why not we need a copy right now and the judge totally agreed he said absolutely of course i mean this was it's extraordinary because this is what the defense was up in arms about five months ago that they weren't getting all the discovery in a timely fashion. So it was a surprise to all of us to hear that that this hadn't been put in. But there's something else, and I don't want to take it too off track, but there is a, a conversation that was had um, that they are all arguing over about admitting. Um, and this was a conversation right before that June 10th interview with law enforcement 
that John Griffin was at, Ronnie Crosby, uh, Mark Ball. These are all these are attorneys at um, his at Murdoch's former law firm who are also close friends. Uh, John Marvin Buster. Uh, Randy. Anyways, there was this whole group of people that had come together to support Alec Murdoch right before he was going to be giving this second interview to law enforcement. Uh, the state is trying to get that conversation, witnesses to that conversation entered in. We heard about it on Friday as sort of this court cliffhanger. We hear it today that we're still working toward getting this conversation that we haven't heard before law enforcement got it. What did Alec tell these people that that they did not want to have admitted or, or that they're concerned about? What did Alec say to Ronnie Crosby, to Mark Ball, to these friends that were supporting him and who was actually standing there? It's going to be it's going to be important. If it, it, it may just be digging a deeper hole as far as his alibi goes, that he was taking a nap up at the house. That's what we're all kind of thinking. But we don't know. We don't know what he said to these folks. So that's why they wanted entered into evidence. And it looks like I think they're getting it. You know, Eric Bland joined me, high profile lawyer out of Columbia. This is a real constitutional conundrum as I see it, because here you've got the defense taking a statement from a state's witness and then not handing it over to the state prior to trial. If the state had done that, the entire audio, the entire statement would be ruled out. The jury would never hear it because the state is under a duty to hand over the evidence to the defense to test and examine prior, far tri prior to trial. So <laughs> the problem is if the state seeks to exclude it because they never got it before trial to examine, then if there's a conviction, there's going to be a reversal because it could be argued the defense was inept. There, usually in criminal cases, as you know, the burden is on the state to produce inculpatory and exculpatory material to the defense. Yep. The defense doesn't have that same burden like in a civil case where there's mutuality of uh, discovery obligations where one side mm -hmm. gets to ask for all the stuff of the other side and similarly vice versa. It's a little different in a criminal case so there there may be reasons why that was not turned over to the state um but there's not the mutuality of obligation <laughs> yeah. to they didn't want the state to have it that's why it wasn't turned over yeah. but that said the state has an entirely different burden their burden is to do the right thing and get a true verdict we're about to head straight back in the courtroom. I'm hearing that the lunch period is almost up. The jury's going to be filing back in their seats. I don't want to miss that. We'll have the eagle eye out for the conversation. And Emerson's telling us about the conversation the state wants in and the defense wants to keep it out. I can only imagine what that is. Guys, let's go back in the courtroom. Goodbye, friend. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.
The journey to a smoke-free future can be a long and winding road. But if you're ready for a change, consider taking Zinn for a spin. Zinn nicotine pouches offer a fresh way to discover your nicotine satisfaction. Anywhere, anytime. No smoke, no spit, and no lingering odor. Get in gear with the Zen 10 Challenge and enjoy 10 smoke-free, spit-free days for just $5.95. Order online and start your new journey today. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Big thank you to our partner making today's crime stories possible. It's Lisa Mattress. Lisa's Sapira Hybrid has been named Wirecutter's Best Hybrid Mattress five years running. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash Nancy for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com forward slash Nancy. Thanks, Lisa Mattress, for being our partner.